You can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, all the way through Exodus chapter 23, verse 19 this morning. A long section of scripture. I hope you have your Bibles with you. We'll be turning back and forth a a little bit. Uh, This portion of scripture is known as the Book of the Covenant, a series of laws that God gave to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. They're something of extensions of the Ten Commandments expounding on the Ten Commandments, clarifying them, giving some details. And these laws were intended to govern the the national life of Israel, both their worship of God, but also their relationships with one another. They're forming them into a nation, a a holy people for God. And they set something of an ethical boundary or, or fence around the nation that was intended to serve as a protection for the people, and also to free them to enjoy the rich blessings of a life lived under God's rule and authority. Now, these laws were also for God's glory. They set Israel apart from the surrounding nations as a people for God's own possession, who were called to give God glory, to give God praise, to reflect his goodness in their behavior. Well, brothers and sisters, the people of God are, are no longer a nation but the church. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. But though we are no longer under the Old Testament law, Christians are under the law of Christ or the law of love. We are called, as we just read in Mark chapter 12, to love God and love neighbor. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, the Apostle Paul wrote that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In Matthew 7, 12, Jesus said, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, we fulfill the law and obey the law of love when we would do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And of course, as we just read, Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commands are something of a summary of the entirety of the Old Testament law, and they are how we are to live as Christians. We're to love the Lord our God, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, if love is the fulfillment of the law, and if love of God and love of neighbor is a summary of the law, what does that mean for us when we come to this long section of Old Testament laws today, to the Book of the Covenant? Well, it means, it means that we know in these laws and in the Old Testament laws that we find examples and principles for how to love God and neighbor. These were expressions of Israel's love for God and love of neighbor. They were commands for how they were to do these things. We may no longer be bound by the Old Testament law, by the letter of the law, but it can still instruct us and give us insight into how we ought to love today. We also see in these laws that the law is not the opposite of love. Those two things are not opposed to one another. Many people today would say that we should put no restrictions on love. Love is love. And people should be free to love anyone they choose. They should be free to love in any way they choose. Well, who are we to restrict love? This is not the picture that the Bible gives us of love. Instead, we see this morning in these laws and throughout the Bible that it's God's commands 
it's God's commands that give love its proper definition and its proper direction. God's commands give love its proper definition and direction. I love how one commentator puts it. He writes this, Love is like a river that replenishes the human spirit. But moral norms or standards provide boundaries so that the river is not dispersed abroad, but retains its strength and power. Because human beings are sinners, they are prone to deceit and may identify as righteous, a course of action that is contrary to love. Moral norms or standards stipulate the nature of love, clarifying what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Again, God's commands give definition and direction to love. So that being said, I have two points to today's sermon. The first is love God. Second, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. So first, love God. Well, it is no accident that the laws concerning Israel's love of God and the worship of him bookend this section of Scripture. They bookend the book of the covenant. It's how it both starts and it's how it ends. God was intentionally highlighting that which is to be most important in the life of Israel. It was their love for him. Their love of neighbor, everything else about their life together and their life as a nation flowed, was to flow from their love and devotion to the Lord. So look with me at Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, the opening verses of the book of the covenant. I'll start in verse 22. Then the Lord told Moses, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. Make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your flocks and herds. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. If you make a stone altar for me, do not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. Do not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. In these opening verses, the Lord essentially repeated the first two of the Ten Commandments. Israel was to have no other gods before the Lord. They were to worship him alone, and they were not to set up idols. Instead, they were to set up an altar to the Lord. And notice that the Lord commanded that this altar not even be made with cut stones. They couldn't fashion these stones into anything. They just had to be natural stones, presumably stacked on one another. I think the reason for that is that the Lord didn't want them to be tempted to turn the altar itself into an idol. We can't make an idol, we'll just make a really fancy altar that will serve as an idol. No, no cut stones for the altar of the Lord, just natural stones. And at the altar, Israel would be reminded of both God's holiness and their own sin. God's holiness was so great that he commanded that they not even make steps to lead up to the altar so their nakedness would not be exposed before the Lord. So the dress of the Israelites at that time was not so unlike the kanduras worn by the, the local men here, except that undergarments were not traditionally or not usually worn. So if the men were to walk up the steps and offer an offering on the Lord, you can get the picture. Their nakedness would be exposed before the Lord. That would not be fitting of the reverence and the honor that was due to him. Well, in addition, at the altar, Israel would be constantly reminded of their sin before a holy God. They were to offer burnt offerings regularly before the Lord to atone for their sin. 
But in God's grace, they were also to be reminded of their relationship to him. The fellowship offering was to signal a a restoration of fellowship between man and God following their atonement for sin. It was a reminder of his grace that they were his people. That's how the book of the covenant opens. But now turn with me to the end of the book of the covenant, starting in Exodus chapter 23, verse 13. This is what we read, starting in verse 13. Pay strict attention to everything I have said to you. You must not invoke the names of other gods. They must not be heard on your lips. Celebrate a festival in my honor three times a year. Observe the festival of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you are to eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, because you came out of Egypt in that month. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Also observe the festival of harvest with the first fruits of your produce from what you sow in the field and observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather your produce from the field. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord God. You must not offer the blood of my sacrifices with anything leavened. The fat of my festival offering must not remain until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your land to the house of the Lord your God. You must not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, just like the conclusion of a book that we might read, a a novel or a textbook, often summarizes the most important points of the book. It wraps everything up. Well, so God concludes the book of the covenant by reminding his, his people of what is most important, their worship of him. If the people truly love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength, they would inevitably love their neighbor as themselves. Church, the same thing is true for you today. So again, it is no surprise that all the commands about loving neighbor that we will look at in a moment are sandwiched between God's instructions for the worship of him. Uh, God's instructions about the worship of him are like the bread. Love of neighbor is like the peanut butter and jelly in the middle. God starts with what's most important and he squeezes the other in between. Well, notice in verse 13 that Israel's love for the Lord was to be demonstrated in their obedience to him. They were to pay strict attention to everything he said. In other words, they were to obey. This is reminiscent of Jesus' words in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Jesus' words to us, his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Brothers and sisters, we are not just to be hearers of God's word. We are to be doers of his word. Actions speak louder than words. If you you say that you love the Lord, you say, yes, yes, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you consistently refuse to obey certain portions of his word. Just that is the pattern of your life. Or you consistently just ignore portions of his word that you don't really like so much. Well, in reality, you are showing that you love something or someone more than the Lord. You say that your favorite drink is coffee, but every time, and you love coffee, but someone offers you tea and coffee together and you always choose tea, I think eventually I would say, I don't think you love coffee so much. I think you love tea. There's nothing wrong with loving tea more than coffee, but there is something wrong with loving something more than the Lord. 
Well, what was it that was to motivate the Israelites to keep the commands of the Lord? It was a reminder of what God had done for them, but also a reminder of his continual uh, provision in their life, his continual grace to them, his continual faithfulness to them. So in addition to the Sabbath observance, at three different times, at these three different festivals, the people were commanded to take a break from their normal lives and to devote themselves to the worship of the Lord. So the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it memorial, memorialized God's rescue of Israel from Egypt, their salvation event. They were to remember how God had saved them. Well, this reminder of God's salvation was to fuel their ongoing obedience. They just continue to remember that, to remind themselves of what God had done for them, that they might follow him, to remind them that they were indeed his people. As Christians, we are similarly called to continually remember the good news of our salvation in Jesus Christ. The truths of the gospel are to fuel our obedience to the Lord. We're a forgetful people. We, we constantly need to go back to the petrol pump and be refilled with the reminders of God's grace to us by the truths of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we show mercy. We show mercy to others, not just because God has commanded us to show mercy, but because God has been merciful to us. We forgive not just because God commands us to forgive, though he does, because God has forgiven us. We love others, not just because God has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves, but because God has loved us. Well, these annual festivals were also reminders of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel and his continual provision. They were not just to look back at what God had done for them, but to remind themselves of all God had promised to do for them. So the, the, feast of, uh, the Feast of Harvest, it happened at the beginning of the harvest season. The Israelites were commanded to bring the very best of the first fruits of their harvest as both a sign of, of their thankfulness to the Lord, but also trust in his future provision for the harvest that was to come, the harvest that had not yet come, but was to come. And then later in the year, when the full harvest had come, they celebrated the festival of ingathering. They brought another offering from their crops to celebrate God's provision. Israel's love for the Lord, their trust in the Lord, was to be demonstrated in very practical ways. It was demonstrated in these festivals. It would not have been easy to give of the first fruits of their harvest, the very best of the first fruits of their harvest. They had to trust that the Lord would provide more. They had to trust that more was coming. This is what the Lord commanded them to do. And by commanding them to, to do these things, he was reminding the people that he was the one who cared for them. In fact, next week, well actually not next week, two weeks when we come back to Exodus, we'll see that God promised to bless the people if they would follow him. They were to trust this. This was all designed to remind them of his promises, that he had promised to continue to be faithful to the people. And that was to fuel or motivate their ongoing obedience and their future trust in the Lord. So two questions for you, church. 
The first, how often do you take time to remember and celebrate God's provision in your life? To give him thanks for answered prayers. As a church, this is something that we want to do next week when we celebrate our 10th anniversary. It's not just a time for a party. We want to give thanks for God's provision to us with this church. Well, the second question for you, in what tangible or or noticeable ways do you demonstrate your own trust in the Lord? Remember, actions speak louder than words. The Israelites were to give of the first fruits of their harvest. Brothers and sisters, Christians are also called to give generously to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each person should do or give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. The New Testament does not demand you give a certain portion of your salary to the church or to others, but it does encourage you to give generously and sacrificially as you are able. Notice from that verse that the Lord desires that you give cheerfully, not out of compulsion, not because someone forced you to, but as an act of worship and and trust. It's an expression of love and, and trust in the Lord. It should come from the heart. But God demands that we offer more than simply our, our money. Romans 12.1, I quote this verse often. Romans 12.1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, so remembering God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. A church, it is your very lives your time, your talents, and energy, and gifts, and and focus that are to be offered to the Lord in worship. This does not just happen when you show up on a Sunday morning. This is to encompass the entirety of your life. Every waking and sleeping moment, you are to lay down your very life on His altar, willingly letting Him use you in any way that He chooses. So brothers and sisters, just... Take a moment and ask yourself, if someone followed you around for a day, a week, a month, a year, would they say that you're fully devoted to the Lord and his church? Would they see any visible evidence that you actually love God and and trust him? You might hear the words that you say, but would they see it demonstrated in your life? Would they say that you've truly offered your body and your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord? Brothers and sisters, the truth is that we will only love our neighbor as we should, only give these visible demonstrations of trust in the Lord as if we love God as we should. The true love of God does not come by simply keeping a list of outward rules. True love of God comes from the heart. And it does not come easy. We cannot do it in our own strength. In order for us to love God rightly, His love must first invade our hearts and transform them. We must be born again, regenerated, made new. We need Jesus. Only then can we love God as we should and love our neighbor as we are commanded. A church that takes us to the second point of the sermon.
First, love of God. Second, love neighbor. Have you ever heard the phrase, good fences make good neighbors? Good fences make good neighbors. It means that having clear boundaries between property can often help keep the peace between neighbors. There is a fence between your land and your neighbor's land, and your dog is not going to go to the bathroom on your neighbor's property. Clear boundaries help preserve the peace. Of course, this is, not, this is true not just with property boundaries, but with ethical boundaries and behavioral boundaries as well. Laws, laws help preserve the peace in society because they set boundaries for our relationships with our fellow citizens. They help set boundaries around what is acceptable behavior. In that way, they free us to live together. It's freeing to be able to walk down the street at night in safety. Good laws are not oppressive. Good laws are freeing. They free us to live together. Well, these laws that we are studying today, they were given for Israel's good to help govern its national life. These laws were a gift of love from God to Israel, just as God's commands today are a gift of his love to us. His commands are not to burden us. They are to free us. Well, these laws that we come to today, they set boundaries and expectations that were intended to help Israel live in harmony with one another so they might reflect God's glory and his goodness and his love and their relationships with one another. Again, God's commands give love its direction and definition. And yet we want to understand that when we come to these laws, they were not intended to cover each and every situation in the life of Israel. So take Exodus chapter 21, verses 33 and 34 for a moment. This is what it says. When a man uncovers a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must give compensation. He must pay to its owner. Now, did this mean that if the neighbor's goat fell into a pit and was injured or died that no compensation was owed? Well, no, uh, of course not. It was teaching the principle that if someone damaged the property of their neighbor through their own negligence, well, they were liable to repay their neighbor, to make compensation to their neighbor for the damage that had been done. This would be the loving thing to do. In my home city, and in the United States, my home city in the United States, there is a law that if a homeowner has a swimming pool in their yard, maybe they have a swimming pool in their backyard, the law says that they must build a fence around that swimming pool. Well, the reason for that law is so a young children of a neighbor, a young child of a neighbor, will not wander over to that pool, fall in, and drown. Building a fence is an act of love for neighbor. So the Old Testament law was not necessarily intended to cover every situation in Israel's life, but to give examples and illustrate principles for how to love their neighbor. They're applications of the Ten Commandments. Therefore, it should be no surprise to us that the New Testament writers often apply these same principles of love to Christians today. And we do not have time to look at every one of these laws this morning, but I do want us to see four major themes or principles from emerge, that emerge from these laws. We could probably look at more. We're looking at four. So these are like the four subpoints under love neighbor. Four subpoints under love neighbor. So the first theme or principle that we see 
is that God's people consider the interests of others. God's people consider the interests of others. Now, the Israelites were not just to care for themselves. They were also to care for their fellow citizens. There were penalties for intentionally or unintentionally taking the lives of their fellow citizens. God is the giver of life. All people have been made in his image. All life is precious to the Lord. So therefore, the people were not just to protect their own lives, but the the lives of others. There's quite a few laws to this end. In addition, in chapter 22, the Lord made it clear that the Israelites also had a duty to care for their neighbor's property. Not just their own property, they had to care for their neighbor's property. They were commanded to pay restitution if they let their animals graze on their neighbor's property, or if they borrow something from their neighbor and damage it. Not be a very loving thing if uh, someone borrowed one of your cars, brothers and sisters, and after they borrowed their car, they got into an accident, they brought the vehicle back to you and said, good luck, not my car, your problem. So over and over again, it was clear that the Israelites were to care for their neighbor's life, their neighbor's property, and their neighbor's overall well-being. Again, we, we find this idea throughout the New Testament. Certainly in the commands for us to to love one another, to serve one another, but also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where the Apostle Paul commands, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Of course, our supreme example in this is Jesus himself who gave up the glory of heaven to come and suffer and die in our place at the cross. As God's people, we are to care for our neighbor. We're to care for their interests. We're to put others first. The second sub-point, God's people protect the vulnerable. God's people protect the vulnerable. But the very first commands that God gives about how his people are to relate to one another in the book of the covenant are about how they are to care for the vulnerable. Look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 2 through 11. God's first commands are about how the people of Israel are to treat slaves that are among them. Now, we do not have time to fully explore the Bible's treatment of slavery this morning. Let me just say a couple of things up front. First, let me draw your attention to Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. In that verse, in the book of the covenant, God makes it clear that the type of slavery we commonly think of when people were kidnapped and torn from their families and their countries and shipped overseas, that is detestable to the Lord. It was deserving of death. It was a terribly sinful practice. The second, we see in the book of the covenant that the slavery in view was clearly temporary. Look at Exodus 21.2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, is to leave as a free man. 
We later see that the slave could choose to voluntarily serve longer if he wanted to, if he or she wanted to, but not against their will. The, the slavery here seems to be something closer to indentured servitude, where someone might sell themselves for a period of time to work off a debt, maybe because they were unable to provide for themselves. There are laws later in the Book of the Covenant where it says if they're unable to pay the compensation, if they've done damage and they can't pay for the compensation, that they have to go serve another instead. Uh, so that seems to be closer to, to what is being referenced here in the Book of the Covenant. But remember, Israel had just come out of forced slavery in Egypt where they were horribly mistreated. But God made it abundantly clear in the Book of the Covenant that they were not to act as the Egyptians had acted. God made it clear that these individuals who are vulnerable must be treated well. So in Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21, and verses 26 and 27, we see that if a slave owner killed his slave, well, he was to be punished. And if he permanently injured his slave, he was to set that slave free. Abuse would not be tolerated. Well, these laws also give a number of other protections for slaves. It was, it was clear that the, the masters had a duty of care. But slaves are not the only vulnerable population the Lord has in view. Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 through 27. I'm going to read those verses to you. This is the Lord's instructions to Israel. You must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him. Since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt, you must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me, and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen, because I am gracious. It's abundantly clear God's people were not to take advantage of those who were in vulnerable situations. They were not to take advantage of the foreigner Notice that Israel was to remember their own treatment in Egypt, and that was to motivate them to treat the foreigner or their stranger in their midst in a different way. Brothers and sisters, remember that when you return home to your home countries and encounter perhaps foreigners in your midst. When this we see hints of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Remember, that is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In addition, God's people were not to mistreat widows and orphans, those who had no power to defend themselves. They were not to take advantage of the desperate poor by charging interest when lending money. Brothers and sisters, is this your guiding principle when you loan money to others? In fact, if anything, we see that the New Testament takes it up a notch. The Lord commands that we should loan with no expectation of repayment at all. And they were not even to keep collateral or security for a loan if that would be a burden for the one who is poor. They took cloak as a collateral, and that was the only blanket that this individual had. They should give it back so that that person could sleep in warmth. 
I also want you to see how Israel's behavior was a reflection of God's own character. God said that he is gracious to the poor and vulnerable. He hears their cry. He is a defender of the fatherless and the widow. He rescued Israel when they were poor and vulnerable, just like he rescued us from the depths of our sin. And therefore, God would judge those who mistreated the most vulnerable among them. In fact, if you just read through the Old Testament prophets, one of the most common charges that God lays at the feet of Israel is their mistreatment of the poor and vulnerable among them. Well, unsurprisingly, since these commands reflect the character of the Lord, we find the same principles reflected in the New Testament. We've already looked at a couple, but James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 1 John 3.17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him. How does God's love reside in him? Well, church, if we truly remember our helpless spiritual state before Jesus saved us, we should want to help those who find themselves in a helpless physical state. This is one of the reasons that we have a benevolence offering here at Emmanuel. So we as a church can help care for the vulnerable among us. I would encourage you to to give to the benevolence offering as you're able. Church, God hears the cries of the poor and vulnerable. Do you? God is a defender of the poor and vulnerable. Are you? God's people are to care for the vulnerable. But third, we see in this book of the covenant that God's people do not show favoritism. God's people do not show favoritism. Look at Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 through 9. I'm not going to read those, but turn there. In verses 1 through 3, God tells his people not to spread false reports. He says specifically, they were not to follow the crowd in perverting or distorting justice. If the crowd was trying to get everybody to do something unjust, God's people were not to go along with it. Well, kids... How easy is it for you to go along with the crowd at school when they bully someone or gossip about someone or spread lies about someone at school? How easy it can be to go along with the crowd to do what is wrong. But God's people are not to be like that. They are to be honest, even when it comes at personal cost. We see in verse 8 that they were not to take a bribe so that they would not distort justice because of that bribe. And notice from verses 3, verse 3 and verse 6, that Israel was neither to favor a poor person in their lawsuit or to deny justice to the poor person. They were not to favor the poor person in their lawsuit, nor were they to deny justice to the poor person. So at least in my culture, it's becoming increasingly common to vilify anyone who is rich and to defend the poor, no matter who may be right in a situation. There is a segment of society that thinks all CEOs are evil. They're villains, no matter what they might know about that person's life. But God's people are neither to favor the rich or the poor. God's people are to care for the vulnerable. We just looked at that. But not at the expense of honesty and justice. 
God is a God of justice. And therefore, Israel was to be a nation of justice. Well, in James 2, again, fast forward, New Covenant, New Testament, James 2. James commands the church, Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He makes it clear that the church today, the people of God today, they are to favor neither the rich nor the poor, but to treat all as equals in Christ Jesus. We're never going to have a celebrity row up here for people who come into the church who may be wealthy. I don't think that's going to be a problem for us, but if it ever was, we have a bunch of celebrities all of a sudden show up in Fujera, they're not going to have their, their designated row. The church of Jesus Christ is to treat all equally, regardless of race, or caste, or class, or ethnicity, or gender, or economic status. The list goes on. They should all be welcome to gather with us as the people of God. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one in Christ Jesus. I also want you to, to notice a couple of interesting verses tucked into the middle of this section. Look at Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying helplessly under its load and you want to refrain from helping it, you must help with it. What in the world are these verses doing in a section where God is commanding his people not to bear false witness and not to show favoritism? Well, I believe it's teaching that God's people should not show favoritism in doing good. They should do good to all, even their enemies. At all times, in every situation, they see their enemies stray ox or donkey, they are to bring it back. Of course, Jesus makes this explicit when he commanded his disciples in Luke 6, 27 and 28. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Christian, God loved you even when you were his enemy. Even when you rebelled against him. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Therefore, your call as God's people are to love even those who mistreat you. Those you would classify as your enemy. We are not to show favoritism in doing good. We're to do good to all. So fourth, fourth sub-point, fourth theme that we see in this book of the covenant. God's people pay restitution. Restitution means to pay back, to make whole, to give compensation for damage done. God's people pay restitution. So I went through these verses and I counted how many times something about restitution or repayment or compensation was mentioned. I counted 20. It was a lot. And we find the principle of restitution in Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 and 24. If there is an injury, then you must give a life for a life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. In other words, the, the penalty was to fit the crime. Excessive retribution would be unjust. You were not to take a life for a tooth. 
You are not to take a hand for a finger. We are not to use someone's wrongdoing against us to get back at them and inflict even more damage, to hold it over them and see how much pain we can inflict. No, the punishment was to, to fit the crime. Well, God's people are no longer a nation but the church. We are no longer to act as a nation. God has not given us the power of the sword, the power to enact legal justice. So we're to apply Romans 12, 19. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So we're called to forgive. We are no longer a nation, a physical nation as Israel was. So we apply Romans 12, 19. Unlike Israel, the church is not called to take vengeance on those who do us wrong. Even Israel was not called to take vengeance. They were called to enact justice. But we are to leave justice in the hands of God and his appointed authorities in the government. Nevertheless, there are a few things that we can take away from this emphasis on restitution or making things right. Well, it teaches us something about the nature of true repentance. True repentance is not just a matter of words. When we wrong someone, it is not always enough just to say, sorry. There are times that we need to make restitution for the physical or emotional harm that we have caused. Brothers and sisters, this is true even when you have hurt someone unintentionally. If you are unwilling to repair the wrong that you have done, if you are unwilling to try to pay for the damage that has been done, I would argue that you are not truly repentant. The emphasis on restitution also points us again to the character of God. God is a God of justice. In our sinful flesh, we naturally recoil about at the idea of us paying restitution in others. But I think if we look at these laws and we're being honest with ourselves, we see that they're just. If we were the one that was wronged, if we were the one that had been hurt, we would certainly desire that restitution be made to us. And therefore, it's the type of justice that we should give to others. As God's people, we should reflect his justice. But also, we should reflect his mercy. God has not given us what our sins deserve. So though we may desire justice and compensation as God's people, we're to work towards forgiveness and mercy instead. We're the ones who wronged. Our desire should be to make compensation. We're the ones that have been wronged. It's not wrong to ask for restitution we should work towards forgiveness. And third, the necessity of restitution in these laws also point us to the gospel. The requirements for restitution, for compensation, you take a life, your life is forfeit. If you do damage, you must pay compensation. The point at Israel to the fact that their sin, their wrongdoing, incurred a debt. And not just a debt to one another, it incurred a debt to God is made explicit in Exodus 22:20, when the Lord commanded, whoever sacrifices to any gods except the Lord alone is to be set apart for destruction. There was a penalty for sin against the Lord as well. Oh, the church, the problem is that our sin has incurred a debt to the Lord that we can never repay. 
There is no amount of restitution that we can make to God. No amount of service that we can offer. No amount of good that we can do to pay off our debt of sin to God. We cannot make ourselves right with God. In our hearts, we have all sacrificed to other gods. None of us are exempt. We have all failed to worship God alone. Brothers and sisters, that is simply what sin is. Sin is bowing down to the idols of our own desires instead of bowing down before the Lord. It's to, in essence, make a sacrifice to another God. Therefore, we also deserve to be set aside for destruction. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God took the initiative and he sent his son Jesus Christ to pay the redemption price for our lives. He made restitution to himself by the offering of his son on the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, when you, friends, were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, God, made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Friends, if you're here and not a Christian, maybe if you're here and you're just not sure, I want you to know that your debt can be paid The gap between you and God can be bridged. And you can find forgiveness and eternal life if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And to you, brothers and sisters, those of you who are here and Christians, take the encouragement from Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your debt has been paid. All your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for at the cross of Christ. When we sin, yes, we continue to repent. We continue to restore our fellowship with God by seeking Him in repentance. But our debt has been paid. Church, these laws, these, this book of the covenant, well, they were pointing Israel to how they were to love our neighbor. And they point us to ways in which we better love our neighbor. But they ultimately point us to Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we find the one who perfectly obeyed all the law and who took the the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. And therefore, it's only as we're united to Jesus and born again and given his spirit that we can be freed, we can be unshackled to worship God as we should and to love our neighbor as we are commanded. Brothers and sisters, you cannot love your neighbor as you should until you love Jesus as you should. The glorious truth of the gospel is not that we first loved him. Not that we have to to work up within ourselves and, and get so much love for Jesus to just get enough. No, the glorious good news of the gospel is not that we loved him first, but that he loved us first. And he gave his life for us on the cross. We can only love because he first loved us. And through that love, he has changed us from the inside out. 
Our love, our love for God, and our love for neighbor is not ultimately our own. It's Jesus' work in us. So brothers and sisters, in this book of the covenant, don't just look at this as a list of commands. See how they point you to Jesus Christ. His grace and His mercy. Forgiveness can be found in Him. Let's pray.